device makers want to kind of wave their hands and be like, oh my God, sensors and circuit boards. And they're appealing to this notion that all of us have who aren't particularly, you know, um, familiar with electronics of like, oh yeah, man, I wouldn't want anything to do with that. That's cool. You don't want anything to do with it. That's cool. But somebody else does. There's a guy in your and community. And he should have the right. And they should have the right to do it. There's a guy in your community who can do micro soldering and he'd love to support his family with a repair shop in your community, fixing your stuff and everybody else's mm -hmm. stuff. And he should be able to do that or she should be able to do that. All right, my guest is Paul Roberts, uh, organizer. How, do you do this? How would you describe your role at securerepairs.org? Uh, founder and um, organizer, I guess. It's <laughs> Chief cook and bottle wash. Chief cook and bottle washer. That's right. That's exactly what I am. Um, you know, Secure Repairs right now is um, really just an organization that I started. We're not, we don't have any official tax status, although we're looking into becoming a 501c4, um, which would allow us to take donations and stuff. But really, it's it's just a, a kind of informal organization of cybersecurity professionals that I started. And I do a lot of, the, you know, bushwhacking and organizing. Dating back to 2018, 2019, you created right. this organization. Why? Give me, walk me back to what prompted this and why your own kind of advocacy? What, 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 what brings this out to you? So this, this grew out of my years of reporting on the security of the Internet of Things. And as you know, I, I started Security Ledger back in 2012, mostly to focus on that issue. I just saw it as an emerging issue that wasn't getting a lot of attention and those years of reporting got me pretty well steeped in the many security issues around smart connected devices, Internet of Things, smart home, you know, connected machinery and so on. And also, I think, introduced me or gave me a early look at some of the problems that were coming our way, not just in security, but in the way that um, device makers were going to start using laws like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to really lock down um, and extend control over the things they sold past the point of sale. So not only sell, not only say, you know, we're selling you this device, but we're actually going to tell you how you can use it, what you can do with it, what it can and can't do, what parts you can put into it. And there's a I big mean, business model attached to that, right? Huge. Because that becomes the subscription-based uh, ARR recurring revenue model where I have a firmware interface to reach that device and I can add features like the Tesla model, right? So That's you're right. talking about that in this smaller ICS IoT space. But let me let me throw a little curveball here. The whole idea of those things are meant to be used until they're done, throw them away and replace them because they're so cheap. Uh, That's right. Why did you, dis I mean, what sectors or what areas uh, did like what, what what were the gaps in what specific areas? Not the throwaway ones that you know required this push to get this right to repair. Right. I mean, there are there are so many, and and uh, you know, just kind of to finish what I was saying before, I I started getting interested in this sort of repair culture, and and here in Boston, it's a very active one. I started going to these local fix it clinics. Um, and meeting people there who were just, you know, these are just community events where people will bring stuff from their home, you know, toasters and appliances and stuff. And there are people and this there. this is not hackerspaces with enthusiasts. These are regular people who have things that are broken and trying to get. Absolutely. Yes. 
having been to a bunch of hacker spaces, you, if you went to one of these, you'd, you'd see the similar types of people. It's, it's a certain ter- type of personality, but yeah. Um, so I started going to these, met up with a guy named Nathan Proctor, who attends them and is the U.S. PERG's uh, national director for the Right to Repair campaign. And we just started talking about this issue. Um, and um, you know, one of the things Nathan said to me is, you know, one of the problems we're having, and at that point, they've been trying to get right to repair laws for electronics passed in states for about you know four or five years. You know, uh, manufacturers are coming in, they're, they're saying hacker and, and cyber attack, and, and the lawmakers are running screaming out of the room. They don't want any part of it if, it, if they think that it's going to cause, you know, uh, uh, cyber attacks. Um, and I knew enough to know that the arguments they were making just didn't add up. You know, that the, really what they're talking about is kind of security through obscurity. We've oh, talked the, about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, by keeping something secret, by, you know, ourselves retaining total control over it, we can keep it secure. And we, you and I both know that that's not the way it worked. Those are the arguments Microsoft used against Linux back in the day. And we both wrote a lot about how insecure Microsoft stuff was. Now, Microsoft sells right. So Linux. it's a lot of a lot of recreation of the old 1990s issues of vendors wanting to pursue security by obscurity, saying that exposing things and exposing eyeballs to things uh, were going to create more problems when it's been proven over the years that exposing more eyeballs to things actually helps to fix problems more. Uh, When did you decide that, you know, we really need to get a a really intense lobbying effort here and and that the security community needed to come in to help educate lawmakers on like some of the problems you were running to. Was there a catalyst? Was there a single event? You know, I think Nathan was like, listen, if you know some cybersecurity people who could, who could come to some of these hearings we're having in these state state houses and just talk, you know, have the conversation we're having, talk to these lawmakers, tell them that, you know, that's not how, you know, device security works. These aren't how cyber attacks on devices work. That would be really helpful to us because right now there's nobody on the other side. You know, we got the tech net lobbyists who are, you know, uh, reciting their talking points. We don't really have experts of our own. And I, uh, like you, got a good network of of cybersecurity professionals. And I also knew, having been to been in the community for so long, like, you know, cybersecurity people, if I had to guess, are right to repair people. These are tinkerers, explorers, hackers, they understand the need to, you know, that when you have a device, it's yours to do with as you want. If you want to modify it, get it to, you know, reprogram it, that's that's part of owning something. That's the right of a property owner. Um, and so I said, you know what, I got I got I know people and let me let me let me see if I can pull the community together and speak with one voice, have sort of an organization of cybersecurity professionals who can speak for the community. And, and that that begat secure repairs. Uh, I, it's very, very interesting because I feel like even giving people devices and, and these things that you're talking about have become so computerized. Everything has got mm. two CPUs on it and it's mm. meant to, it's meant to be a smart device and repairability even seems to be something that's outside the reach of the regular person. What are you ar- arguing for? What are you, what are you agitating for? And in this world of firmware delivering updates to devices and making it much more feature rich and so on, what is the perfect world scenario for you guys? Do you, we want vendors to release schematics, diagnostics information, give software access to these things? Mm-hmm. And, and I know we've, we just had a discussion about security really doesn't work that way. Is there a real risk, real risk in some cases where exposure of this, exposure of these diagnostics information and so on to third-party repair shops and so on could expose 
uh, uh, people to risk? Good questions. Um, so I, a, a, a few things. First of all, um, you know, all of us have gotten accustomed to this notion that there are things that aren't repairable or that when things that cheap, cheap electronics that we buy, when we break, we should just throw them out and get a new one because they're cheap. OK, um, we, we really need to disabuse ourselves of those notions. Right. Those are notions that have been put into our head by corporations interested in selling us lots of things. Apple wants to sell us three or four iPhones in a decade, not one iPhone, right? Because that's very good for Apple's bottom line. But in fact, the iPhone can last a decade. Maybe it can last two decades, right? Our notion of how long an iPhone should last is something Apple has spent billions of dollars to promote and put in our heads. Um, and right to repair works against that. It's saying, no, the best thing that we can do for ourselves, for our wallet, um, for our community, and most importantly, for the planet, is to use everything that we have as long as possible. Recycling, which is what the electronics industry likes to talk about. Oh, we recycle X percentage of everything, and we're so good about recycling. Recycling is better than just throwing it in a landfill, but it's not as good as extending the useful life of something, of making it usable for as long as it possibly can be. You know, it's like your car, right? <laughs> you know, drive that car for 20 years until it just can't drive anymore. Go to Havana, Cuba, see them driving 1950s Chevys around Havana, right? That they've maintained for decades, right? Whereas Chevy would have liked to have sold them 20 cars in that time frame. Um, so the, the big thing with right to repair is really disabusing ourselves of this notion that there is such a thing as disposable tech. There isn't. And if manufacturers actually had to pay for the environmental cost of putting that device in a landfill, they might change they their own behavior. Yeah, but yeah. they don't, right? Throwing something in a landfill costs them nothing, whereas they make a big profit rolling more stuff off the assembly line. So the big thing, the biggest tension we have is really trying to re-educate consumers about that. If you have an inkjet printer, right? I know you only paid $99 for it, right? It's a, it's a cheap piece of electronics. But the reality is, if a dollar or 75 cent capacitor in that thing burns out and it stops working, the best thing for you and for the planet is not to throw that thing in the landfill and get a new $99 inkjet printer. It's to replace that 75 cent capacitor on the circuit board and keep that thing working for a decade, 15 years, 20 years. It's it crazy. It really shakes our notion of like, well, an inkjet printer working for 20 years. That's crazy. It shouldn't be. And if we had a robust ecosystem of small independent repair people who had access to the information they need to repair those things, then we could all have inkjet printers that lasted 20 years, iPhones that lasted 20 years. Right. And our and the whole way we think about technology would change. But we're all sort of living in this world the, the definition of which has really been created by large technology companies, mm -hmm. electronics manufacturers that are interested in rapid refresh cycles, pushing new stuff onto us. You know, Apple's big, you know, CES every year, you know, Apple's big product unveilings. Oh, look at this. You know, it's new stuff. We don't talk about the cost of that to the planet, to our wallets. Right. We, we need to change that. And, and right to repair is about that. Um, in terms you, of you need um, a perfect world scenario, what it would look like? Yeah, <clears throat> a perfect world scenario. It would look something like your 
the market that exists today for auto repair, right? Um, you buy a, a car, um, you know, you might take that car to the dealership and have them fix it while it's under warranty. Once it's off warranty, you're probably going to go to an independent garage, right? It's much cheaper um, and they do just as good work. Um, maybe for some stuff, you might fix it yourself. You might go to AutoZone, buy the part yourself and put it in new oil filter or something like that, right? Save yourself huge amounts of money. Um, a healthy ecosystem for uh, device repair would look like that. Um, you would buy a new device from a manufacturer. Um, maybe they would support it you know, under some kind of warranty for a period of time. But there would be a huge and diverse ecosystem of uh, small providers uh, like the Corner Garage, uh, parts suppliers. Back in the day, we had Radio Shack, but like stores like Radio Shack um, or online, you know, uh, equivalents where you could buy um, parts um, to maintain it, keep it up. And there would be information, schematic diagrams, instructions, service manuals on how to do that. Um, and then you could just like with your car, keep it going, keep it on the road, so to speak, for years, um, as long as the thing can last. Um, and that's what it would look like. Um, but we don't have that right now. And the only help you can get, like you mentioned, you're up against multi-billion dollars, conglomerates with massive marketing budgets, getting us into that mindset of you need this new device, you need this new shiny thing. To, mm -hmm. uh, so you're up against that. You're turning now to governments and you're turning now to the politicians and policymakers to, for help because it's clear that the manufacturers will not do it themselves. There's too much of an economic incentive there for them to retain yep. the status quo. Yep. And and you're not going to change people's notions on getting a new iPhone overnight. I mean, there's a whole, I mean, that's embedded into our brains. So now the idea now is to mandate manufacturers to do this, either at, at creation of the, the, the technology uh once it's shipped, having these repair kits and having the ability for people to do repairs and so on. How do you, like, tell me what has happened once your lobbying, your official lobbying started around 2019 to today, and how have the politicians kind of shifted? Have you, do you feel like there's momentum where the politicians are shifting their thinking? Yeah, uh, more good, more good questions. Um, so first of all, like what right to repair, what right to repair laws um, say, and there are, there are no federal laws, right? These are all like state. There have been federal laws proposed, but no, there are no federal laws. The only right, right to repair laws in the country, uh, there are three. Uh, Massachusetts, which in 2012 passed an automotive right to repair law that okay. the auto industry then recognized nationally in 2014 with a memorandum of understanding and basically said, we don't want to have to deal with complying with 10 different versions of this. So we will honor the Massachusetts state right to repair law as if it's a federal law, which is why in Arizona, you can continue to take your car to an independent garage or go to AutoZone and get so it fixed. So everyone just kind of absorbed the Massachusetts lead from- The automakers said, we're not going to fight this. We'll just, we'll comply with it nationally instead of now having to go and, you know, figure out what New York wants from us and what other states want from us. Right. So we Can don't we want to have to hear on the automakers thing for just a second as it mm -hmm. relates to a newer uh, EVs and uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 as we get into EV in the EV world. Mm. Uh, do, do you expect it'll, it'll be the same? And, and are those automakers pushing out those newer things that require computers to fix? Are they, have they kind of absorbed that Massachusetts thing? Are we moving along with status quo as it is? No, and in fact, obviously, the the automate the elect the EV maker we all that all comes to mind for all of us Tesla, mm -hmm. 
Um, because of the way that the 2012 law was written, um, it, it only applied to automakers who have dealerships in Massachusetts. And because Tesla, of course, does not have dealerships at um, all, right? It, it, at all, it doesn't have to comply with the Massachusetts law. And Tesla has gone a very different route. Really, as a Tesla owner, you have very few choices but to get your car replaced at a te Tesla authorized uh, repair shop or Tesla dealership. Um, Tesla service center, um, and it's incredibly expensive to get it repaired. And there are stories about, oh, Tesla wanted $5,000 to replace this, but I found a guy to do it for $500. I mean, you know, right, Google right. it and you'll see those stories. Um, the other traditional automakers with, with, in the EV world, because I'm, I'm bringing this up and again, excuse my ignorance, because I don't yeah. really follow this as closely as possible. I'm just an outside observer. Yeah, that's fine. It seems like, like if I have a Tesla, I don't want to repair it. Like I don't want to take it to a shop and have someone finger with so much computer systems and so many firmware interfaces and, and instances everywhere. Are you running into that at all from some consumers? Who well, there's say, certainly that notion. I mean, what I would say is... <laughs> what I would say is, you know, fixing electronic vehicles, fixing sophisticated machinery is is no different from fixing anything else. You're right. Electronic circuit boards and 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 sensors do make devices more complex than when they were just mechanical. But that does not mean that there aren't people who can fix them. And you can go on YouTube um, and watch entire tutorials on micro soldering, right? Where they're soldering with a microscope and little um, solder things that are the width of a human hair and fixing tiny components on circuit boards to get them working again. Any repair that you can imagine can be done and it can be done by the manufacturer and their authorized repair people, or it can be done by your neighbor if he's, if he's into that right, or right. A, you know, a shop in your town. There's nothing inherent about the fact that this stuff runs software or that it has microelectronics in it that make it unfixable. Device makers want to kind of wave their hands and be like, oh my God, sensors and circuit boards. And they're appealing to this notion that all of us have who aren't particularly, you know, um, familiar with electronics of like, oh yeah, man, I wouldn't want anything to do with that. That's cool. You don't want anything to do with it. That's cool. But somebody else does. There's a guy in your and community. And he should have the right. And they should have the right to do it. There's a guy in your community who can do micro soldering and he'd love to support his family with a repair shop in your community, fixing your stuff and everybody else's mm -hmm. stuff. And he should be able to do that or she should be able to do that. Um, Jessa Jones on, on, um, on YouTube has a whole channel just on micro soldering. She's an expert in it. Um, and it's also about accessibility. People say like, well, you know, your iPhone breaks, you should just take it to the Apple store. There are states in this country where there are no Apple stores, <laughs> including Vermont, just to the north of me. No Apple store in the whole state. So if your phone breaks and you want to go to the Genius Bar and you live in northern Vermont, you might be driving three or four or five hours to do it. And that's if you're poor, you know, that's a day off of work for you. Um, so bring it, back. I want to come back. It's to also about having access to those things in your community right. where you are. Um, I want to I want to bring it right back to yeah. uh, uh, the policymakers. Are you start, starting to see the mindset among policymakers changing? And how would you describe yeah. like? The, so the uh, other thing I'd like to point momentum. out is so these right to repair laws. All they really say is they don't force manufacturers to make stuff repairable. They don't force or ask anybody to offer repair services. All they say is if you offer repair services, authorized repair services, right? So I think the Genius Bar, right? Or, or Best Buy, Apple, you know. So if you, re 
offer repair services and you give your authorized repair people special tools, parts, information, schematic diagrams, diagnostic software. Apple's got a whole bunch of diagnostic software. Um, if you give it to those authorized repair people, you have to give it to the owners of the device and you have to give it to independent repair people as well. You can't have a monopoly on that information and those tools. That's all it says. If you want to make something that can't be fixed like the like the AirPods, right? Unfixable. Go, go ahead and knock yourself out. Um, but if you offer authorized repair services, you can't have a monopoly on those. That's all right to repair laws say. Um, in terms of the changes in, um, in the mindset. What are, what, are, what, what are the successes you've had? Let's, hmm? let's, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase the question that way in terms of the changes in the mindset to the politicians. What are yeah. some successes you've had? What are like, you know, things that keep you going? We've done, we've had a pretty good year. 2022 was a pretty good year. We passed uh, and I'm on the re- board of the repair coalition. Um, so I'm, you know, uh, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like I'm like, uh, in, you know, You're not making this up. Yeah. Objective journalists. <laughs> like I don't get no, like I'm, I came off the sidelines for this. Like I'm on the repair yeah. coalition. Like I'm lobbying, like I'm not objective at all. Um, but we had some successes. Um, we passed, um, in Colorado, a, a right to repair law that just covers, um, power wheelchairs. Um, so there was a hearing in 20, 21 um, for they had a, just a generic right to repair electronics law. And there were a lot of people from the Colorado disabilities community who came out in their wheelchairs, power wheelchairs and saying, we are waiting months for simple repairs to our wheelchairs. Without our wheelchairs, we can't move. We're in bed. We're getting bed sores. We're going to the hospital. Like, and it's because- So it's just for wheelchairs in Colorado. Just power wheelchairs. And all these lawmakers, so that law died in committee, but all these Colorado lawmakers were like, you know what, if there were just a law for wheelchairs, I'd vote for that, but I'm not going to vote for this electronics right to repair. We came back the next year and said, great, here's your law just for wheelchairs. (laughs) And it passed. Right, I mean, right. Yeah. It passed. Was that, a, got signed was into that law. a take what you get thing deliberately or were you just kind of like, we, we, we'll just take these small wins and try to rack it up as we get going? Exactly. Exactly. It's like, listen, it's a, you know, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. It's only one category of product, but it, for first of all, for the wheelchair users in Colorado, it's huge. And right. And if and, you can prove it as a proof of concept that it doesn't expose security right. issues here or it doesn't expose security risks here, you might right. get expanded or and you could bring forward some future expansions, right? That's right. And now Montana is actually has a wheelchair right to repair bill that they're that they're considering. So other states have taken taken note of right, that. Right, right. Um and, and it was sort of taking them at their word. Like, listen, you said if it were just wheelchairs, you'd be in favor of it. You know, let's let's, let's see. Let's see. And Lo and behold, they were good to their word. And it was bipartisan, passed overwhelmingly. So that was that. The other one, big one, uh, was the New York, well, there were actually two, uh, the New York State Right to Repair Law. You're a former uh, mm-hmm. resident. Former uh, New Yorker here. I paid attention to that one because I want to ask you a little bit about that. that the, yeah. the bill that actually passed got watered down at the watered end down, because yeah. of some last minute lobbying and so on. And I want to ask about like, yeah, let me let you finish up first. So New York, you said- So you New York was a big one. That was basically a, a, a broad electronics right to repair bill that they, you know, the industry lobbyists went in during the legislative session, carved out a whole bunch of stuff. Home appliances got carved out. Agricultural equipment got carved out. Cars got carved out. So it was limited, but it was pretty, still pretty broad. It was basically personal electronics. Um, and that was amazing. It passed, um, I think, 145 to one or something in the New York Assembly and by veto proof majorities in both the Senate and the right. and the state assembly. So bipartisan Republican Democratic report support. 
went to Governor Kathy Hochul, who took over after Governor Cuomo stepped down um, and sat there for six months. Um, the because lobbyists, of lobbying and because yeah, of lobbyists, right? TechNet and and frankly, even lobbyists for some of the some of the product categories, AHAM, the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers, was still lobbying against it, even though it didn't even apply to their to their members, right? Because right. um, they just want to kill these things. Um, and she uh, unfortunately acceded to them and enforced. I didn't know this about New York politics, uh, about New York government. Maybe you did, but the governor actually has a tremendous amount of pol power to kind of unilaterally renegotiate legislation with the legislature um, and kind of force in their own changes in exchange for their signature. Um, and well, she were you was guys involved that. in that lobbying and, and, and lobbying her office as well? Yes, uh, Secure Repairs briefed uh, both wrote. Um, wrote her uh, correspondence and her staff and briefed her staff uh, in a Zoom um, to talk to them about the particular, because one of the things she was responding to was this, you know, argument from TechNet in particular, you know, oh, this is going to create all kinds of cybersecurity risk. Security and, problems, and right. We got on the line with her specifically and said, that's not true, that, you know, this is not, you know, uh, first of all, connected devices are, are terribly insecure. It has nothing to do with device schematics right. or, you know, diagnostic codes or, you know, software or spare parts. It has to do with the fact that, you know, smart device makers are making really poor right. quality software and actually pushing that out into the market. Um, and where it gets even more ridiculous is they're they're giving these schematics to their own authorized resellers who can't be can't right. be relied on to keep it secure anyway. So right. I mean the information is coming out anyway. anyway. It's just that you're maintaining your monopoly to give it to your preferred authorized vendors, right? It's just like your auto like if your auto dealership, if you were to say, like, I think I'm just gonna take this to a corner garage, right? This is cheaper, you know, they're gonna right. argue till their face is blue. Oh, don't do that. They do terrible work, the they use crappy parts, you wanna use OEM parts. You know that they're full of it, right? They're like, no, they do good work. And those second, you know, those yeah. aftermarket parts, they work fine. And it costs me half as much. It's the same argument. Oh, you know, those independent repair shops, they do terrible work. They don't. They do fine work. The parts they use are fine. In fact, authorized repair is no better uh, than independent repair. There's no right. data that's ever shown there's any difference. Um, and when the so, FTC had a hearing in 2019 about this whole issue, they asked the manufacturers, listen, if you got data that shows that authorized repair is any better than independent repair, that your guys are safer, that they handle data any better, or, you know, more secure, please give it to us. They were never. You can, you'll never, you'll never yeah, get that. You'll never get it because it doesn't exist. Um, so, so, yeah, um, so Governor yeah. Hoke, Governor Hoke will, uh, 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 signed again, more of like a watered down final version. So, but we have something in New York state that applies to certain categories, right? And in fact, all the changes were so last minute. I mean, this was literally 11th hour. Um, all the changes were so last minute. And this is recently, like a minute, a month ago, maybe uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. A few weeks um, ago. There's a lot of really confusing language in the bill that ultimately got passed. And what I'm hearing is some of it may be very beneficial to repair. It's really going to fall to the state attorney general to sort out with all those last minute changes what the oh, heck the bill actually right? says and what it allows. And we're just going to have to see how that turns out. So, so where but else, where, yeah, else are you getting, where else are you getting traction? And and what happens next? And and I want to ask I want to ask about Deere as well because I just yeah. saw a news story on the BBC that John Deere is suddenly going to open up, and I know Deere was a a, a big part of the the, the anti repair lobby. 
They're kind um, of the poster so, well, child for. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean that's where the farmers were saying, "Listen, I, this is untenable, right? Right. What exactly is the status there?" So what's happening in 2023 is what's happened in every year pretty much since 2014. So we're, we're, a bunch of states already have brought forward right to repair bills of a variety of different shapes and sizes. Some of them are just the generic electronic, you know, g- generic right to repair bills that stretch across product categories. Some of them are focused on agriculture. As I said, there's one in Montana focused on wheelchairs. Um, Massachusetts um, is going to probably bring one forward uh, focused on portable electronic devices. So we're just going to see a lot. We've had 20 plus states for the past five or six years that have brought these forward. I think we'll at least see that this year. Um, now that New York did what it did and and so on, I, I think there's a sense of like, hey, we can get this done. Um, so, so that's going to happen. And we'll see. Many of these are going to die. Um, particularly in some of these legislatures, you know, out in the Western states that are part-time legislatures, you know, they're meeting every two years for like two weeks and they just got, they got a full agenda and they just can't get into the weeds with this stuff. Um, But for the other states, you know, the Washington states, the Californias, the Massachusetts, um, you know, New Hampshire, Maine. um, Is there a red state, blue state divide on this issue? Not really. That's one of the really interesting things. And I must say, as somebody who's been working on it, I think one of the really heartening and encouraging things is bipartisan as much. We have had Republican sponsors, Democratic sponsors. These things get traction in red states just as much as blue states. Um, And this is something that cuts across party lines. Um, It appeals to people's sense of just fairness, um, people's sense that corporations are too powerful, that they're, you know, it's, you, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conspiracy theories and the system's rigged and so on. I think a lot of those are misdirected. You look at some of this stuff, you're like, yeah, the system kind of is rigged and here's how they're rigging it. You know, they're getting in there and lobbying and preventing legislation that would really help you and your family, you know, buy and hold on to electronics, help your community and small businesses. Right. Um, but these bills are getting killed off. Um, so no, yeah, it's 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 really encouraging. Um, I just went to an, a right to repair hearing for agricultural equipment a few, couple of months back um, in North Carolina, and you had you know um, small farmers from rural communities getting up there and speaking passionately about you know the the, the really terrible conditions that they um, suffer under as a result of right. restrictions on repairing agricultural equipment. And it's um, odd because a lot of the times you have to use security vulnerabilities to go fix things yourself. And then you get into right. this weird, weird, weird world. What can we expect from the federal government or should we expect any activity from the federal <laughs> government? And what have you guys been doing to attract some sort of their attention? So last year we saw a number of right to repair bills introduced on Capitol Hill. Um, there was the Repair Act. Um and uh, there were some auto, there were some auto right to repair bills introduced. Um, Bobby Rush introduced um, one. So a, a bunch of um, there was an agricultural Senator Tester introduced an agricultural right to repair bill. None of them passed. Well, they did not pass. They just kind of died in committee. Died, yeah. um, but I think the expectation is we're going to see those back again this year. Obviously, you know, the House has changed hands. Not exactly sure what the disposition of the Republicans are towards this, but I wouldn't assume that they're not going to move forward. Um, I, I would expect that, 
they will move forward in some form. I'm just not exactly sure where, but there are right now, there are a bunch. There's an agri, there are agricultural right to repair bills. There are auto focused right to repair bills. There are electronics focused right to repair bills. And there are bills focused on really reforming the DMCA, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Right. Um, and, and Which is a remnant from the a remnant from the, the early 90s, 2000s right. that blocks people from looking at things that are software based, right? Blocks people from circumventing software locks and blocks mm-hmm. um, people from distributing tools to help other people disable software locks. And that's a big one because you know even if you can get exemptions, like there's an exemption for um, circumventing software locks to repair farm equipment, right? Um, so you so you can do that without violating the DMCA. The Librarian of Congress made that determination a few years ago. The problem is that without the tools to do it, it falls to every farmer to basically hack their own tractor. Right. Um, and this is an 800 or million dollar piece of machinery you know, as a Nobody farmer, you don't want to risk the same it. conversation. The same conversation we just had around notions of repairing right. things, right? I so don't you need somebody else's to tools, buy. right? You need Joe Grand's tools or or mm-hmm. Bunny Wang's tool to do that, but they can't distribute it because of the DMCA. So, all right, you right mentioned Joe so. Wang, you mentioned Joe Grand, Buddy Huang. I want to ask about something that is quite noticeable to me. Maybe I'm wrong, so correct me yep. if I'm wrong. Um, the security community, the hacker community has not fully leaned in on this right to repair thing. They've been peripherally in the background helping. There's been mm-hmm. some, you know, and I don't know, you've been working along with folks to do talks, fix, mm-hmm. fixing the fixed conference. Like you mm-hmm. guys did a lot of, uh, you did a lot of work with the security community, but I feel like I don't feel a groundswell of hacker communities, security communities, makers, hacker space groups of guys really leaning in. And, and, and is that, is that, is that a fair or unfair? And how do you, I mean, what can the security community do? What more or how would you like to see them embrace it more? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's a good question. As you know, I mean, I think the information security community in general, the people that that we deal with are not what you call joiners. You know, they're they're individuals, um, you know, they have their own thoughts and their own opinions are super smart. You know, cybersecurity professionals like we're used to dealing with are, are individuals and they have an individual mindset and they're engineers. So they tend to look at things based on the merits. Um, they're not the sort of like, hey, yeah, give me a T-shirt and give me a hat. and I'm going to go out there and hold a sign like they're you know, that, I, I think that's not their go to. Um, they want to understand things. Uh, they want to understand the stakes and things. And then, you know, if they agree, they'll they'll get involved. Um, we've got more than three hundred um, IT and infosec professionals and who have who have you know agreed to be supporters of secure repairs. And we've had them turn up to state hearings and and brief individual lawmakers or groups of lawmakers one on one. Um, so I've been really heartened by the response. We, we, like any other organization, we got a core group of people who are highly involved and a, right. and a much bigger group of people who are kind of loosely involved or following it. Um, but I, you know, I think, I think the big, I think the problem is less the information security community not being highly engaged with this and just sort of the level of awareness of right to repair generally in the society. I think it's something that if you're in this nerdy little area, you're following this issue, it seems like you know, it's a big issue, but you go out to a party and say right to repair to people and they're like, 
what yeah, like yeah. you know that's right that's <laughs> so why it's just the, the level how of can, awareness yeah how, how can i lean in here in arizona how can security people in general lean in what are the needs and you know how do we like how do uh, you that's knowing how knowing how hackers operate yeah how can the security community be used in a way to disabuse those notions of it being a security problem like what are like give me some examples of some projects or or, or talks or yep. or things that my audience listening to can say listen let's yep. lean in and do a project and go get a black hat talk out of this like give me some examples of how guys should be thinking so the first thing they should do is go to securerepairs.org so that's s e c u r e p a i r s.org and and Give me their, you know, just sign up. Just gander around there, right? You don't have to, if you don't want to, if you work for a company, you don't want your name listed publicly, that's fine. That's part of the registration part. You can just be on our list of people we can we can work with, but we won't list you So publicly. you want to grow that list. I want to grow you that list. You want to grow that public visible list, right? Right. I started Secure Repairs in 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 one, one sense to be sort of a speaker's bureau because I knew there were going to be right to repair laws happening all over the right. country. And I wanted to be able to be like, okay, there's a hearing in Indiana. Who do we have in Indiana? Let's send this guy. Because... For lawmakers, it makes a difference if you're in, in Indiana that you got somebody there in the hearing subject matter expert who's a right. constituent uh, local, right. from your state, not some guy from not some guy from Massachusetts, right? Um, so I wanted people all over the country, and we've got that. So what I'd say to your listeners is, there's a really good chance, no matter what state you live in, that there's going to be a right to repair need. bill right. coming up for consideration this spring and into the summer, and there are going to be hearings, and there are going to be you know virtual or in person that you can go to and testify or even just send an email in to, you know, to the committee and say, Hey, I live in your state. I'm a cybersecurity professional. I support this law. Um, the cybersecurity there, you know, there aren't really cybersecurity issues with schematic diagrams and stuff like that. Um, that in and of itself is hugely helpful. And then of course, like any other organization, if you want to do more, if you want to be like, Hey, let me organize people here in state. I've got, you know, contacts and in, in the infosec industry or the IET industry who also support this with me, we'd like to do more in the state. Let me know and I can facilitate that. I'm, you know, I that that's kind of one of the reasons I started Secure Repairs. Right. So they can think, they can really act locally on this and actually acting locally will make a big difference in getting some of these laws over the line. And I want to end with one small thing. What are, are, are you noticing vendors and companies that are embracing right to repair? I know, I know of one and I want to, I mean, mm -hmm. perhaps you're, you're obviously, you'll be aware of them. Last, last year at the LabsCon conference, we gave away these framework laptops, mm, uh, F-R-A-M-E.W-O-R-K framework yep. that allows you to literally repair your laptop, swap in, and swap in tools and they sell all these things. So it yep. seems like, you know, there, it might be a tiny percentage, but there's some vendors who might be leaning in on this, save the planet. Let's, let's, let's let people repair their things. Let, let, we don't need a yeah. laptop to be, uh, you don't need to replace and re refresh laptops every year and a half. I mean, yes. We have functional things here. So in addition, talk a little bit about framework, mm. what you know about how they're leaning in. And are there others that we don't know about that we can give props to? There are. So framework's amazing. I, I, I do a podcast on that. So I started a newsletter called fighttorepair.news and we do a little podcast associated with it because of course, Brian- oh, We can find that on securerepairs.org. Uh, um, you see it referenced, but just go to fight to repair okay. news. Yeah. And it's like a okay. sub stack that I started because, you know, Ryan, I'm not busy enough. Um, <laughs> um, but we, we interviewed Nirav Patel from, from framework, uh, on it. Amazing organization. They really started 
with this whole idea of sustainability um, and that, you know, we, we should give people the ability not just to fix their laptops, but mod them, expand them and make that easy for them. And it's a really amazing platform. I think it's getting a lot of cred in the sort of hacker community, engineer community. Um, You're a big fan of how they're approaching it? Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, I think iFixit gave them like a hundred percent on their, you know, fixability index. I think it's like right, the highest right. score so ever that's, given. That, that, would you say that's the model of how others can kind of look yes. at and take some examples from? Yes. On the phone side, there's Fairphone, which is a sort of the framework of the smartphone world. Mm -hmm. um, Fairphone is based in Germany, I think. Um, and they make very similar kind of modular, uh, uh, repairable, expandable uh, smartphone uh, runs um, Android. Um, honestly, even if you look at traditional players like Dell, um, Dell introduced a sort of um, uh, super fixable version of their laptop. But even before that, Dell is a company that makes um, replacement parts, schematics, service manuals for all of their laptops and, and desktops freely available. They've always been a very kind of pro repair company. Just you really? know, you, you think of the nature of Michael Dell building computers in his in his uh, garage right. back as a teenager. But they that continues to this day. And they're, they're, they're in general a very, you know, certainly compared to a company like Apple, pro repair company. And they just in 2022 introduce an even more kind of you know, a repairable version, a laptop uh, that they're going to be selling. So Dell is a company um, that that I think already gets it and is expanding it. We've seen even, you know, Apple Computer. Apple is starting to ship these, uh, Apple is starting to ship these fix-it kits that you can request. Right? That's right. Yeah. So Apple, um, Samsung um, is partnering with, sorry, Samsung is partnering okay, with. dog bark. We'll have it okay. in the archives forever. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, Samsung is partnering with iFixit to make repair uh, uh, parts and tools available for their uh, smartphones, for their Android phones. Um, Apple obviously introduced its own um, self-service, self-repair um, program. It's problematic, but nevertheless, it's progress. So we are seeing um, manufacturers start to recognize this, start to realize that, especially younger people now, sustainability is really a big concern for them. And they're not so cool with the idea that, oh, you know, you have something for 24 months and when it breaks, you just throw it in the landfill. Interesting. It's um, interesting so, that yeah. you bring this up because I noticed this with a, a generational shift around this thinking, this consumerist thinking of throwing away and getting a new one. I don't yeah. know if it's just my exposure to my kids and like the next generation in my world, Yeah, but they're not, they're not actively refreshing iPhones or demanding iPhone refreshes. They're cool with yeah. their old iPhones working just as it is. They're cool with repairing and so on. Do, are you sensing a generational shift in thinking they're one? And are you sensing a generational shift among the politicians to say, you know what? We, you know, at some point there's corporate lobbyists that are going to be paying them at some yeah. point, right? So yeah. you're battling against that. And what is that push and pull? Do you get a sense that there's progress happening? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, on the question of younger generations, you know, uh, patterns, young men and women are our kids' age. Yeah. Um, absolutely. 100%, you know, their attitudes around what's important and what's valuable, um, you know, they very much value sustainability, environmental, you know, awareness. Um, mm -hmm. 
they're they're not as into the sort of you know it's you noticeable I, to you right yeah and you and i kind of grew up in the 90s you know like new stuff like oh cool new technology you know and you know they're, they're, they're not less, enamored with it so yeah, they're, they're less they're, enamored they're with that, yeah word, right um on the legislator side you know you're dealing with a different demographic right older um mm -hmm. you know honestly, having lobbied all over the country for this, you know, you just realize that, you know, your lawmakers live in a real bubble environment and the people, honestly, that they're encountering day in, day out are not their constituents. They're basically lobbyists. That's who they spend all day with. That's yeah. who they go to lunch with. That's who's taking them out at night to events. That's the milieu they move in. And so their framework and their understanding of things is very much shaped by those people, um, uh, by their staff too, you know, for sure. But, you know, getting, breaking through that noise as, as somebody who doesn't have a big campaign contribution in your hand is, is difficult. So, you know, it's an uphill battle with that group. There are, you know, amazing are there lawmakers. Are Congress who are allies? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that was going to be my next question, right? There, now. Are, now, there are some there amazing are, I mean, lawmakers that stand out. There, there are. I mean, Bobby Rushforth, his, his, his uh, auto repair bill, Senator Tester, um, you know, my Senator Elizabeth Warren is, is very um, uh, positive on this stuff. Um, we've had a representative from uh, Washington State who actually owns a re uh, auto repair shop um, who oh, just got elected, who's who really ran almost ran a Democrat, won in a pretty red district running on repair as actually a really big issue, leading issue. So it's yeah. one of those I, I try and say to legislators like this is a you know, you want to like get on the cutting edge of where people's thinking is and what they're concerned about and what really gets them motivated. And, you know, these issues around corporate control and corporations kind of trying to reach in and, you know, cut off, you know, squeeze, you know, strangle small businesses, you know, force you to pay an arm and a leg for a simple repair, keep you waiting two months to get your wheelchair, wheelchair repaired. Those are things that people are experiencing day in, day out in their lives really pisses them off and they're looking for lawmakers to help balance that playing field to stop you know having it be tilted so far in favor of large corporations multi-billion dollar corporations private equity firms that type of thing and democrat or republican if you want to get you know really appeal to voters you know who are who are struggling with those things whether it's farmers or you know just a small business owner um right to repair is a good way to do it um, people really do, you know, heads nod. People really respond when you start talking about this stuff. So, you know, I think the smart lawmakers are, are there. I think they see that and, and, they're, and they're, they're getting behind it. We're running out of time, so I'll give you one last question. What sure. should we look forward to next from this right to repair movement? Are there some bills bubbling up? What, what happens next? What should we look forward to in 2023? Um, you know, again, Bill, there are bills already been proposed in, um, I, sh I should check my list, it, it changes every day. I mean, certainly there have been bills proposed in more than a dozen states already, um, you know, dealing of various, with- Of various- uh, Yeah, agri uh, so a bunch of them are agricultural focused, um, uh, some of them, again, wheelchair focused, some of them kind of electronics focused. So what I would say to you is if you're in a state um, and, and, you know, first of all, register with securerepairs.org. We will keep you informed on what's going on in your state. And we reach out to people and say like, hey, there's a hearing coming up. If you're interested, let us know and we will help you to get registered to testify or send you the information on how to you know, email in your comments or testimony. You don't always have to do it in person. 
Um, so I would just say, keep your ears up because this stuff is definitely coming to your state and you as an, I, as an infosec person really have a lot to add to the conversation. Your, your voice is really important in this. And, um, and we want to, we want you to be able to speak up. My friend, Paul Roberts from securerepairs.org. Thank you very much, Paul. Hey Ryan, it's been great.